If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 28. You probably saw the weather report today. It's, it's going to be a hot one, like a 103 uh, type of hot one. And unfortunately, it's so hot that it, it created an electrical short in your fuse box at the house. And, and lo and behold, I, I hate to break the news to you, but your house is on fire. It's uh, in this hypothetical scenario, it's burning to the ground, but it's burning slowly enough to allow you to five minutes to run inside and grab a couple of items. Now, assuming everybody and every living creature has already been evacuated, when you run inside, what is it that you decide to grab? You know, when I, when I have tried to, I don't know, do that do that mental exercise in the past, off the top of my head, I find it rather difficult to answer because I'm not kind of by nature a stuff person. I don't, I don't find much in the way of attachment with inanimate objects. So I said, well, would I save, save my golf clubs? No, probably. Probably not. Uh, my shotgun? No. I, just like you, I would grab the photo albums of course. That would be one load. And I'd want to find the kids' memory boxes. I think that inside of them, each, each of their first golden locks of hair have been cut and clipped. And, and um, Allie's bank bank is her, what she called her very first blanket. The remnants of that are found inside of the memory box. I'd want to grab a collection of letters that Aaron and I exchanged in the summer of uh, 1996. And, you know, the more I realized, the more I I, I thought about it, the more I realized that that is what I would want to rescue. And if you do that, you, you will find it to be a very clarifying exercise about what matters to you or, or to me. And when you answer that house-burning-down question, what you ultimately discover is, is where your priorities lie. Well, in Mark chapter 12, the, uh, the rabbis in Jesus' day said that they counted 613 laws in the Old Testament. And the question is a very fair question. Which of these laws should be prioritized above all the rest? Uh, wh- what laws of the 613 does God consider the most important? And what Jesus does here is he tells us, In verse 28, read with me. One of the scribes came up and heard Jesus and the religious leaders disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important, uh, the most important of all? And Jesus answered with the Shema, Shema Israel. The, the Hebrew word for listen or to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's interesting. With all your mind. There, originally, if you go back to the Shema, I think it's Deuteronomy 6.5, you'll find that it says heart, soul, strength, but mind is not actually given there. 
who does he think he is to take like the classic text of Judaism and add what he sees fit to it? It's just another one of those instances of Jesus being unlike everybody else. Um, he says, you're also to love God with, with all your mind and with all, all your strength. But then he goes on and he gives a second. The second, verse 31 the scribe only asks for one. Jesus gives him two. The second is Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, Rabbi. Which was very odd because the scribes are constantly fighting with Jesus in all of the gospel accounts. You are right, Teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no, one, no other besides him. And to love him, love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far away from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Like every passage of Scripture, there are multiple, multiple ways of looking at it. There's a very depressing way of looking at this one. First, the depressing perspective. I mean, this is one of those passages that can hit you in the middle of the head like a two-by-four when you realize that I don't love God like this. I mean, not even close. Not in the same zip code or area code or hemisphere. This, this whole heart, soul, mind, strength, that was a Hebrew way, classic Hebrew way of saying that you are to love God with all that you are. Like, 100% of you, 100% of the time, from the top of your head down to the tips of your toes, you are to love God with your everything. Like, that is the central idea of all of the laws of the Old Testament. A comprehensive, love Him completely. Well, I don't do that, and neither do you. And, And while we're thinking about it. Just how many neighbors have you loved as much as you love yourself? You know, how often have you pursued their welfare with the same energy and vigor and intensity that you do your very own welfare? And when you look at the passage that way, it is rather depressing. But the truth is that you could pick apart every loving relationship that way I don't love my dear wife adequately. And she doesn't hammer me on that point, thankfully enough. I don't love her adequately. But at the same time, it it doesn't mean that I don't love her at all. Um, When little Johnny crawls up into your lap and says, Daddy, I love you, what father is going to look back at him and say, No, you don't. (laughs) No, you don't. You disobey me daily, hourly, you little ingrate. (laughs) 
Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think God intends this to be a two-by-four passage. He says, this is what I want your life to be, imperfectly so, but, but striving toward becoming greater lovers of God and lovers of other people. The million-dollar question is, how do we become people like that? Like, if this is the sum of the whole Old, Old Testament law, how do we become people like that? How do we become great lovers? And I think that the simple answer to it, the way to become a great lover is to be first loved yourself. Now, you and I become people whose lives are, are marked by love, by first experiencing a replenishing, embracing, transforming love of God for us. Is that, is that how you would have answered that question? The way to be a great lover is, is to be greatly loved. Like a, a 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. A John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive together in Christ, even when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Um, is that what you have said? That the way that you become, like the person that you want to be and the person that God desires you to be is by drinking deeply of the well of, of the gospel. That neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation shall ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is how I'm going to become a person who... It's funny how a number of us carry with us, like seven days a week, 24 hours a day, like a self-loathing. If you describe, uh, if you'd ask us to describe how pleased or displeased we are with ourselves, um, I've heard it said, oh, I'm the wicked witch of the West. That's how I feel about myself. Or I'm just the, the biggest loser, liar, and lunatic. I've heard people describe themselves as if that's really going to motivate you into becoming a great lover of God and people. Here, here's what will motivate you, I think, is the three greatest words in the English language are God loves sinners. And I don't know when was the last time that you really felt both like a sinner and truly and deeply loved by God. But if there is any secret to becoming this thing that Jesus tells us all of the Bible is about, then there you have it. I was talking with a friend this week, and he asked me what passage I was going to preach, and I told him I was preaching on the greatest commandment, and he said, oh, Brad, you're going to preach a really good sermon on that because, because you yourself exemplify love. I thought, um, I thought, I wish I shared your assessment of me. <laughs> I don't feel that way about myself. And, but those are really kind words. That's about as, as high of an encouraging compliment as, as you could give somebody. And to whatever extent it is true, it is true because of being loved, as I just said, and 
because of the community that I've spent the last 15 years of my life in. You know, they say that you become what you're surrounded by. Well, I've been surrounded by people who believe that the way God relates to us is through grace. And like, that's the way we're supposed to relate to each other. I've been surrounded by a community and a place of grace for going on 15 years now. And do you have any idea how, what a sweet thing that is? To be able to come to church on Sunday morning and, and not be afraid of, of judgmental spirits that you know, different forms of judgmentalism and, and criticism. Um, I don't have to worry about what you're going to think about me based on where I send my kids to school or who I vote for in the primary or whether or not her skirt is long enough or whether or not she's even allowed to wear makeup or, or whether or not I'm allowed to drink alcohol or take antidepressants or go to a Rolling Stones concert. I'm not worried about those things because I've been in a community of grace. You know, some of you have have either recently come out of or at least been at some point in your life in communities where there was a very long list of implied, implicit, and sometimes very explicit rules that you were expected to follow that went really far beyond what the Scriptures taught. I, I say, by and large, we become what we're surrounded by. And if you're part of a community that is critical and fault-finding, then that will, will breed a community of fear. A, a community where love does not blossom. But if you're in a community that believes that God loves sinners, and that is as patient with sinners as God is as patient and gracious with you... One of my favorite love of God stories, I think I told it to you a couple years ago. It it involves the Christian activist speaker, Tony Campolo. One of his mother's closest friends, Mrs. Kirkpatrick, died. And he thought, he didn't know Mrs. Kirkpatrick very well, but he thought it would be good to go to the funeral to pay his last respects because of, mostly for the sake of his mother, but he looked at his watch. The funeral was at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and he realized that he was going to cut it, be cutting it really close. He was running behind. And the last thing you, that you want to do is show up late to a funeral. So he just, you know, pedaled to the floor, kind of crazy driving across town. And he arrives at the funeral home like at 1.58, like just in time. And he you know, quickly ducks into the, the dimly lit room. And by the time he... Ha- has to catch his breath, he realizes that he's sitting two seats away from an elderly woman, and they are the only two people in the room. He breathes a little more, and he looks up at the casket and realizes, that's not Mrs. Kirkpatrick. (laughs) That's a man that I have never seen before in my entire life. And he's, he's about to do as tactfully as possible to, to leave the room when that little elderly woman sitting next to him like grabbed his arm and, and says in a voice of desperation, you were his friend, weren't you? Weren't you? And what's he going to do? Say no? <laughs> no, I'm at the wrong funeral. <laughs> so I lied and I said that I, I knew him and that he had always been kind to me. 
After the funeral, he got into the car with the woman to head out to the graveside. And it was the only car traveling there. They, they stood at the grave and said some prayers together. They threw some flowers on the casket. And they then returned back to the funeral home to, to exchange, I guess, exchange cars. And he said, I have to tell you something. You know, we, are, we are friends now, and I, I can't be your friend if I don't tell you the truth. The truth is that I didn't know your husband. And the truth is I came to the funeral by mistake. And she replied, you'll never know how much your being there meant to me today. And it just goes to show you, um, that's kind of a microcosm of most of us. We are desperately lonely people. Um, I mean, that Jesus Christ would call us his friends. That's what he said. No longer do I call you servants, which is kind of the Americanized version. Literally, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you my friends. And greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. It got, it got me thinking. Um, you know, the word Islam, just as a counterexample, Islam is, as I'm told, an Arabic verbal noun, which means surrender. Literally, to surrender to Allah, Allah being literally the God. As, to surrender to Allah is revealed through the message and life of the prophet Muhammad. Like in the religious sense, Muslim means, means anyone or anything that surrenders itself to the true will of God. Surrender, submit. And yes, there are elements of that in Christianity, but I don't think you're going to hear in too many other places in the religious world or even the secular world that you are God's friend. And, and that you love because you have been, been loved by such a great friend. There's a reason why virtually every song on the radio is about love and why most of the movies and most of the stories that captivate our attention are almost always stories about love and why all the great tragedies in life are really tragedies of love, as one author puts it, why the man or woman who lives without love or who had love but lost love or the person who obtains everything else but love, how they always find their life hollow because they remain unloved. There's just an, an overwhelming need out there for it, isn't it? Isn't there? And churches are places that strive when it can be found inside them. I know that's pretty obvious, but I mean, doesn't it bear repeating? So I told you what I thought was a good love of God story illustration. Let me tell you a good love for God story, and it's found later on in, in Mark chapter 12 in this chapter. I guess I could have read it to you originally, but I'll do so now in twelve chapter 12, verse 41. It's the story of the widow's might. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and then a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. 
And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And why would you uh, put money into the temple treasury box? It was simply because you were committed to the worship of God, continuing on. You, You cared about God's worship, the love of God, and how it might affect other other people. And so what they had around the temple in that day, stationed, were were these large boxes with what the the Mishnah tells us were kind of trumpet-shaped tops there that you would... Do you remember um, they used to have for the the Ronald McDonald house where you put the coin in and it goes, and it goes, right? I don't know if this was that. (laughs) But, oh boy, (laughs) there's Jesus, and he's in the court of the women, and he's watching their offering practices, and the rich make what what had to be a big show of it. They would just drop handfuls of coins as they cascade into the box. And And Mark says that the widow put in two lepta. Lepta, from the Greek word leptos, which means thin, really thin coins, so thin that they weighed 1.5 grams of copper. So just for kicks, I pulled up on the internet the uh, copper ounce price calculator. Such a thing exists. And I wondered, well, okay, what does 1.5 grams of copper, what would that be worth in today's valuation? And sure enough, a gram and a half of copper is worth one penny. And so if you have a—I'm told if you have a lepta sitting in the, the middle of the palm of your hand and you were to blow on it, it would blow away like a feather. And she had two. And that was her whole net wealth. And she gave—she could have retained 50% of her entire life savings— by keeping one of the leptas. But this is what love does. When you are in love with somebody, you almost instinctively want to demonstrate that affection for them in the, the, the most uh, risky and maybe imaginative ways. I don't know if I, if I ever told you the story about I bought Erin a ruby ring for her, I think it was her 20th birthday. Uh, at that time, it was maybe like uh, $120, $150. That was a lot of money for, for me in 1996. Uh, 1996. And oh, I was so excited to give it to her. And the way I decided to do it was I set up a scavenger hunt over the entire University of Arizona campus. And, and so she had to go from clue to clue to clue. Eventually, the scavenger hunt took her off the campus entirely and up the hill to the, to the mountain that's just adjacent to Tucson, uh, up Mount Lemmon, where we had this nice little... I, so one of my good friends, what a sport. He went up, 
he went up Mount Lemmon ahead of us and he set out a picnic lunch for us at kind of at a, a rest stop area, but it was not gross like a rest stop. It was, it was nice. And we're driving along and all of a sudden, you know, I pull off the road and I say, let's get out and stretch our legs here. <laughs> and, and we had a picnic lunch and, and I gave her the ring. It is depressing. I, I don't love God like that. And you don't either. Um, the lovers, like, I don't think any of us came to church today with, with the idea of, of loving God like that. Maybe you did. I hope you did. It's why parents love birthdays and Christmas almost more than the kids themselves. Um, it's because you love. I, what I do know is that the scribes would not have done that. These men who knew the Bible inside and out, knew all the intricacies of the Old Testament law. That was their job. It's quite likely that of the 613 laws of the Old Testament, they could, they, they may have had most of them memorized. But it's safe to say that they would never love God in such a creative and risky and tenuous fashion. So, I, I'm not talking about money. This is not, this is not the money sermon. It's just the, the, it's the question. What is the vision of life that you aspire to? Don't you want to be a person who radically loves God and other people this way. And isn't it so easy to just let love become one among many other religious duties? It's so easy to lose a clear focus that, that this is, this is the end all and be all of, of, of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for answering the way that you did, because it's, it's a very simplifying and clarifying way of looking at things. It's what I'm calling you to today but I, I'm doing so not by saying try a little harder, give a little more energy. I'm just calling it you to, to be loved by God a little bit more. Because if this is what you aspire to, then you have to drink from the wells of the gospel a little bit more. No matter how ridiculous of a failure you feel like, no matter what your level of self-loathing, you have got to learn how to relish a little more that God loves sinners <laughs> like you and me. It's true. 